Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God our Father and from the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today's message comes from the Old Testament reading of Exodus, as you heard a few moments ago. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, we asked the children already this morning, so we might as well ask you too. How many of you have ever experienced something new? And just like the examples with the kids, sometimes these things can be positive, and sometimes these can be not so positive. I mean, maybe it's a, a new brother or sister, which I think sometimes could go either way. Maybe it's a new house. Maybe it's a new car. New clothes, new food. Sometimes with new things, we can be hesitant. If it's new food, maybe, you know, we just don't want to try it. Maybe we do, and it's gross. Maybe we do, and it's so good. Think about the times when you've experienced something new, and it's been a good thing. Think about the times where you've experienced something new, and it's not been a good thing. How did you respond when it wasn't good? Say you're working at a job, and you get a new manager— And that manager is not like the old manager. You go from a a fun working environment where you look forward to coming to work every day to dreading having to go to work every day, and it becomes more of a burden. Maybe at some point you even get fed up with your boss and you quit. And what if you've been on the other end of things like that. Maybe you're that new manager that comes in. What do you do? I remember when I was in seminary, and and as we're getting closer to graduation, as we're getting closer to call night, they have a few practical conversations with soon-to-be pastors. And one of the things that they told us is, don't change anything for a year. The idea behind this is that Going in, you're the new guy. You have to take some time to get to know the people, get to know how things run. You don't want to just come into a church like a bull in a china shop and just start changing everything that you deem to be wrong with the church or that they're just doing differently than how you would do things. It's because most people aren't going to respond very well to that. And I mean... People might look at that pastor and say, who are you to just come in and and tell me everything that I've been doing for many, many, many years is wrong? I mean, who likes to be told that they're wrong? That's what I thought. Plus, you know, it's like the joke, maybe you've heard it before. How many Lutherans does it take to change a light bulb? You know the answer? It's change? Or, I'm going to throw this one out here too. Be like uh, coming up to somebody and say, hey, can you move over? See that? <laughs> you guys sit in some of these seats for so long, it's got your imprints. It's like it's, it's exactly the right spot for you, right? Someone asks you to move. Well, <laughs> I'll stand up and let you walk, but you know, this is my seat, right? right? Change. Switch seats on you sometime. 
Maybe we'll just reserve all of those spots that are make you come up front too, right? That's, that's a Luther thing. You guys all sit in the back. In the 50 years that peace has been a congregation, right? some of you will understand this a little bit because you've been here. There have been a number of pastors throughout your history, and they're all different, and they all do things a little bit differently, and they all do things differently than the one who came before them. Now, this doesn't mean that anything that you were doing is wrong, that anything that the other one was doing is wrong, unless some of the things that they're doing were contrary to God's word. But for the most part, it's just different. And as a congregation, you trust that the pastors are going to lead you according to God's word and according to God's will, and that they're going to carry out to you the promises and commitments that they've made to God, and they're going to carry it out to the best of their ability, and the things that they do, or maybe even the things that they change, are for your benefit, for your good. Now we're pastor sinners. Come on, you can say it loud. It's okay. Absolutely, right? Yes, uh, I'm, I'm a sinner for sure. And I'm also no different than you. Except we just kind of have to stand front and center on display for all of you to see. Which means when we do sin, sometimes it's front and center for all of you to see. You can see the good, and you can see the bad. If we go back 50 years, for those of you who have been around from the beginning, there's been plenty of changes throughout the years. There's nothing wrong with change, necessarily. Just sometimes it's how we deal with the change. If we go back a few thousand years, we see the people of Israel in the land of Egypt. All right? People of Israel, also known as Hebrews. The beginning of Exodus starts the same way that Genesis ends. A large family with a very important place in God's plan. Joseph, if you remember, was sold into slavery by his brothers, and he ends up in Egypt, eventually becoming the second in command next to Pharaoh because he was able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams about seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. Through that, he ends up reuniting with his brothers, seeing them, having them bring his father, his whole family to Egypt to take care of them through these years of famine. Now at this time, as the family comes, there were 70 people who were saved by Joseph. However, as they say, all good things must come to an end. Joseph dies, and with him his entire generation dies eventually. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So they originally went from five people, right? And if you've been with us going through this history, those five would be Jacob and his wives Leah and Rachel and their maidservants Bilhah and Zilpah. So the five of them is what starts that family. And then they become 70. And then they turned into hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands. We don't know how many there are at this point. 
And then the new king, Pharaoh, arose in Egypt, a king who didn't know Joseph, didn't know his family, didn't know the history. And rather than continuing this seemingly great relationship that the Hebrews and the Egyptians have, he's afraid of what might happen to them because they are a people in great number and they are strong. And they're afraid that if they join against the Egyptian armies, if they were to unite with the Egyptian enemies, and at this point it was likely the Hittites at this time, well then the Egyptians could be destroyed. And so they seek to enslave the Israelites with heavy burdens. Now, I wasn't there in these days to see how it played out. But if you've heard the story, you might be sitting there thinking, I mean, how could they let that happen? I mean, if the people were really strong and mighty, how could they just let themselves be handed over to enslavement? Well, it's possible that even though these people were strong, maybe they didn't have any strong leadership. They didn't have anybody to stand up and tell them that this isn't okay. Maybe they didn't have people who were ready and willing to stand up to the Egyptians if the time ever came, which of course it did. And so rather than fighting, it's like they just allowed themselves to be put into slavery. Seems pretty unfortunate. However, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. It was almost as if the harder their slavery became, the stronger they grew, and the more people they brought into this world. Now, it's not very often that you hear something like this, so this might be the first time, where someone's response to when the going gets tough is to just procreate and get tougher. Here it is. This place of Egypt became like a mother's fertile womb to the people, just multiplying like crazy. And it only made the Egyptians more scared. So they increased the labor of the Israelites. They were ruthless in their enslavement of them. And the people thrived in their affliction. They just kept growing. And partially why this was able to happen, that they keep growing, is because the Israelites didn't have any pressure to intermarry with other nations. In this case, the Egyptians. If you remember from the story of Joseph sharing a meal with his brothers, with his family, one of the times that they're in Egypt, they were all sitting apart from one another because the Egyptians don't eat with the Hebrews, because it is an abomination to do so. Which means the Egyptians certainly aren't going to intermarry with the Hebrews. So the people of Israel became strong as a people because they didn't have those temptations to give up their true worship of the one true God for any of these other false gods. And this is partially the story of the people of Israel and why throughout their history, in the, book of the old, books of the Old Testament, which you'll see if you stay around with us long enough, because we're going to go through these books, that they survived. This nation survived among all of the other nations where others didn't. 
They fell apart. They collapsed. They intermarried. They lost their identity, who they were. The Hebrews, the people of Israel, stayed true to who they were as God's chosen people. And they kept that identity. And God was with them, even amidst all of their cruel and harsh servanthood. And you can imagine that how, forever how many years this lasts, that their life must have seemed pretty hopeless at some point to the people of Israel, that they were never going to get out of this. And that if God had some place in, some plan in mind, some way to rescue them or save them, well, it was pretty far away. Never going to happen in their lifetime. Nevertheless, it was true. And the wickedness of the Egyptians would never be able to overcome God's plan of salvation for his people. And that's also why it's important that the line of Israel survived, because from it would come their true Savior. And even when slavery wasn't good enough, and Pharaoh said to the Hebrew midwives, that if a woman's giving birth, and if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. God was still with his people. And so the Hebrew midwives who feared God, did not do as the king of Egypt commanded him, commanded them, but they let the male children live. Now, this is an all-important question of whether or not we obey God or we obey men. It also reminds us of the disciples after Christ's resurrection. They're told to stop talking about Jesus, stop telling the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, and their response is, we must obey God rather than men. And then, of course, Pharaoh questions why all of these Hebrew boys are still alive. And the midwives say, those Hebrew women deliver their children so fast, so fast that the babies come out before we even make it there. Now, we don't know whether or not this is true or whether it's partially true, right? It could be fully true. But even if they lied... It's not for their dishonesty that we would commend them, but for their refusal to take infant lives. Even if the midwives had deceived Pharaoh, that was not what God blessed. He blessed their bravery in obeying God before man. And then God enabled them to have children. Because usually midwives held their occupation in this time because they had no children of their own. And since his plan didn't work, or it wasn't working, Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile. Now, it's not just the midwives who are supposed to do this, but it's all the people to take out these male children and let them drown in the Nile. Now, the Nile River was the source of life, bringing fertility to their land. And now... It's going to become an agent of death. However, God works his plans for his people. He was always with them. And soon, that agent of death, that river, will be where the deliverer of God's people would be taken from. God uses water to save. Stay tuned next week for that one. For now, death 
was the answer to the problem of the vast number of Hebrews, the people living in the land of Egypt. Sometimes, in our life, it seems that evil reigns supreme, that wickedness has won, that death and destruction will take over. And certainly, personally, it seems like that in my own life from time to time. And I think of Jesus' words when he says that no one is good but God alone. Or Paul when he says in Romans, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. I am a wicked person. We are wicked people. There is no good in us. And what we deserve for our wickedness, our sinful actions and our thoughts and our desires that are sinful, for giving into temptation time and time and time again. It's for God to hand us over to evil, to hand us over to death and destruction. And that does not happen on account of God, but on account of us. Because the result, the consequences, the punishment, the payment for our sins is death. It's physical death as we will all one day perish on this earth. And we've been seeing that recently. We've had funerals recently. We have more coming up. The effects of sin are felt on us still today. They're felt as loved ones pass away. And it, they're felt even as we endure our own kinds of sickness and diseases and pain and suffering. And it's all the result of sin. Amidst it all, God is still with us. And he is working his plans for us. The wickedness of man cannot overcome God's plan of salvation. In fact, God used the wickedness of men, Judas, the Pharisees, to accomplish his purposes. He allowed them to betray Christ, to have him be arrested, sentenced to death, crucified, and die because it was the only way to save his people. Yes, we all deserve death for our sins. Even more, we all deserve hell. And that's why Christ came, to die for us, to take our sin, to take our punishment, to take our death, to take our hell, to die in our place. He allowed himself to be nailed to the cross because he was the only one who could save us, who could rescue us. And the agent of Christ's death became the means for our salvation. And when he rose on the third day, he proved that he had overcome all the wickedness of the world and defeated sin, death, and the power of the devil once and for all. Because that's how God works. His plans are not our plans. His ways are not our ways. And he does things for us that we never even see coming. Through his death and resurrection, he changes us for our good. He takes that old sinful self and he makes us new. He redeems, restores, rescues, forgives, and grants eternal life to us because of the faith that he gifted to us by the Holy Spirit, whom he sent to us. And he is always with us, no matter what we go through in this life. 
And even though Christ has overcome, sin and wickedness are still in the world. Satan is still working, and there are wicked people all around us, like Pharaoh of old. Now, they may not want to kill us. They may not want to kill our male children. But there are certainly those who want to kill the church of Christ. And just like the Hebrews who knew their identity as the people of God, your identity is in Christ. It's why the church has remained throughout these generations, throughout persecution, throughout famines and hardship and wars, no matter how dark it seems. It's because God's people have stayed true to who they are. They have stayed true to the word of God. And the word of the Lord endures forever. And if the word of the Lord endures forever, then where that word is proclaimed will endure forever. Christ's light shines in the darkness, and Christ's church will always be here. Sure, some churches, we would say the little C, those congregations, do get small, and they close from time to time, and it's unfortunate. But Christ's church, the big C church, which can't be counted within a set of walls, will always remain. And those little C churches that proclaim the word of God faithfully, that administer Christ's sacraments to his people properly, those means of grace, will always have Christ present doing his work, no matter what comes their way. Whether they prosper and multiply amidst all the afflictions, or whether they struggle and decrease amidst all the suffering. God is always with us. And he is using his means to save his people. His word, the water, his body, and his blood. All of it for us and for our salvation. Amen. Now the peace of God, which passes all understanding, guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.